Joining us on the WBGO Journal is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice, Ryan Haygood, a familiar face to WBGO. Great to see you as always, Ryan. Good to see you too, Doug. I've, I've missed you. Missed you too. And uh, interaction, you know, is, is, is fine on Zoom, but it's not like the real thing, is it? It's not. Although I'll take it for now. We have to do what we have to do. This year, New Jersey is celebrating Juneteenth as a state holiday for the first time. And the Institute has big plans for the occasion. Talk about the importance, first of all, of Juneteenth to the New Jersey Institute of Social Justice, and then we'll get into the program. Sure. So, Doug, thanks again for having me on the show. This is really, I think, a special moment uh, in the life of New Jersey as a state to acknowledge uh, Juneteenth as a state holiday. Juneteenth it, uh, marks the historic date, June 19th, uh, 1865, when uh, then Union uh, General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas, and he informed about 250,000 uh, and formerly enslaved Black people that they were free. Uh, the tricky thing there, Doug, is that they had actually been free for about two and a half years going back to Abraham Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. But upon hearing the good news, as you can imagine, they did what we would all do. They dropped their plows and they, and they celebrated their freedom. And I think what Juneteenth has come to, to, to mean to cities across the country, to people across the country, is that there is, it's important to celebrate freedom. Um, and that's what Juneteenth embodies. Juneteenth is one of the oldest celebrations of freedom in America. Uh, many cities across the country, many states across the country recognize it as a state holiday, as New Jersey now does. But I think there's also another sort of side of Juneteenth, that even as we celebrate freedom, I think we have to be mindful that we continue to live in the shadow. We continue to live in the legacy of slavery, because even though those 250,000 newly freed folks were told of their freedom, they had already been free at law. And so I think part of what Juneteenth embodies is the recognition that even sometimes when you have freedom at law, when you're technically free, you're still not totally free. And that there's an ongoing pursuit of the kind of freedom that Juneteenth embodies. And so that's part of what we'll celebrate here in Newark this coming Saturday. Yeah, let's talk about the event on Juneteenth, June 19th, when U.S. Senator Cory Booker, Congressional Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman and Donald Payne Jr., state legislators, multi-faith clergy members, and advocates across the state are all coming together in Newark for this event. You have to be pretty excited about it. Tell us why you felt it was important that Newark yeah. should be the focal point. So yeah, great question, Doug. You know, as a kid from Denver, Colorado, we had a big a Juneteenth parade uh, every year to commemorate Juneteenth. And I'm over the moon excited that we're now having the chance to do that in, in our city of Newark and the mighty city of Newark. But I think we want to do two things. One, we want to commemorate Juneteenth and, and recognize it as a holiday, recognize it for the freedom that it symbolizes. But we also, we want to do more than commemorate the idea of freedom. And so to do that, we're calling this a Juneteenth rally and march uh, to support the New Jersey Reparations Task Force bill. And so many of the folks who will speak on Saturday, and you mentioned we've got a great lineup of elected officials, Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver, 
uh, will speak, a number of uh, faith leaders, uh, leading advocates, leading voices across the state will come to the city of Newark, which has its own long history of slavery as New Jersey was has more broadly. People don't often think of New Jersey as a place where slavery took root, but it did. It took root very, very deeply, uh, so deeply, Doug, as you know, that today Black people in our state confront some of the worst racial disparities in every direction in the area of health, as we realize more acutely in the context of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, in the area of criminal justice, as we recognize most recently around policing and youth justice, in the area of wealth. You know, New Jersey, although it's one of the wealthiest states in the country, it's also a state where that wealth travels alongside to really punishing poverty, such that the median net wealth for Black adults in New Jersey is $179, an incredibly staggering number. It's $106,000 for white adults, and that is directly connected to slavery in New Jersey. So we're standing on Juneteenth to push New Jersey, our elected officials, uh, to pass our governor to sign a bill that would create a reparations task force that Doug simply would do two things. One, it would look at New Jersey's role in slavery. And two, that task force would design policies to address the enduring harm of slavery. So we want to make Juneteenth, yes, a celebration, yes, a commemoration, but we also want to make it an action item that people there will stand with us to push this legislature, every one of whom is up for re-election this year, to pass the New Jersey Reparations Task Force this year and for Governor Murphy to sign it as well. That task force contains a word that is a powerful word sure. that is a controversial word in today's world. And a lot of people have different opinions and a lot of people come at it from different angles. Ryan Haygood, your thoughts on reparations? Sure. I, so I love that question, too. So this campaign that we've launched, along with partners across New Jersey, is called Say the Word Reparations Campaign. And it's inspired candidly by a conversation we had with Speaker Craig Coughlin when we were seeking his support for the legislation. And he told us that he would support a task force. But why do we have to call it a reparations task force? Why couldn't we call it an economic justice task force, some other name for the task force? And we said back to Speaker Craig Coughlin that the concession we're making is that we're asking for a task force, right? So that we can thoughtfully understand the precise ways in which slavery took root in New Jersey and how we can design a system to repair the enduring harm. In most cases, when you ask a, an elected official to create a task force, it's a light lift because task forces are created all the time. So we made the concession to ask for a task force so that at the very least, we have to be clear about what the task force will do. And that the chiefly is to work together to design a system to repair the enduring harm that is illustrated by the racial disparities Black folks face today that are directly connected to slavery in New Jersey. The root word of reparations is repair. And as we recognize that what we've seen happen across America, yes, but right here in New Jersey is part of structural racism. So in order to combat structural racism, you have to repair harm. And that's what reparations is designed to do. You know, it's noteworthy, Doug, that in Speaker Coughlin's district is Perth Amboy. Perth Amboy was one of the major ports into which enslaved Black folks were brought 
enslaved and owned and made to work. New Jersey was a state when founded that gave every English settling family 150 acres of land. And it gave those families an additional 60 acres of land for each enslaved black person who worked on that land. And that's a history that we have to take account for, not only because it happened historically, but because we continue to live in the legacy of that history, which is what Juneteenth is about. I'll say this, Doug, I know this is gonna be, we're gonna follow, um, we're gonna follow social distancing and masking rules, recognizing that we're in the coronavirus space and that this is a real pandemic, but we're also gonna lift our collective voices through those masks to speak directly to Speaker Craig Coughlin, to Senate Majority Leader um, Sweeney and to the governor to say, if we wanna make this moment different, we have to do things we didn't previously do. And there's only been one other state in the country that's passed a reparations task force bill, which is California. And together we can make New Jersey the second to do that. And then we can serve as a national model to other states asking the question, what do we do in this, in this national moment of racial reckoning? And how do we actually make this moment different? And part of it requires us to say the word, reparations, and to have that conversation. Do you have any sense of where the governor stands on that right now? So great question. We had a number of conversations with a governor who says he supports the idea of the task force. And so we're looking forward to building on his support. I believe that when we get the reparations task force bill to his desk, he'll sign it. So you said something early on in this interview that, you know, is really important because when people think of New Jersey, not everybody thinks about mm-hmm. slavery and thinks about what a racist state this was. Mm-hmm. And you could say always continues to be depending on how you look at certain things. But New Jersey was not just because it, you know, was a part of the union. It, slavery is a big part of New Jersey's history. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great point, Doug. I think, that, I think that we have in our minds as New Jerseyans an image of what New Jersey is and who we are, right? And we think of ourselves often as a very progressive state, a very forward-thinking state, a very inclusive state. And in some ways, we are those things. We happen to be one of the most racially diverse states in the country. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of New Jersey. But it's also true that that racial diversity, that really rich racial diversity, exists alongside some really entrenched racial segregation. Right? We happen to be one of the most prosperous states. I think we're second only to Maryland in terms of our median net wealth overall. But we're also a state where that incredible prosperity exists alongside some really punishing poverty. And so I think for us, a more sober-minded view about the complexity of New Jersey is both that we are all the good things that we think we are, but we certainly can be more of those things. And we have to be honest about the place from which we've come. You know, I think a lot about this moment in this way. I think we're all standing on a foundation in America and here in New Jersey, right? And that foundation, as we've seen over the last year in particular, that foundation is cracked by structural racism. And it's through those cracks that Black communities in particular have experienced real real earthquakes. Now, we didn't create those cracks. We inherited that foundation, right? We didn't make the foundation. We didn't create the cracks. We inherited those. And so on one hand, what we could do is disclaim responsibility for those and say, well, that happened a long time ago. 
I'm not responsible for it. I didn't own any slaves. My, 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 my parents didn't own any enslaved people, right? Our family didn't. That's one perspective. But another one is to say, yes, we inherited the foundation, which is cracked by structural racism, but we are required to take responsibility for the foundation as we found it and to make it better. And that's really what Juneteenth, the celebration on Saturday is about, is both commemorating the freedom, the strides we've made uh, since 156 Juneteenths ago, right? But it's also, and we're going to make it better. We're going to take the foundation as we found it and repair the cracks by having conversations we haven't been willing to do and doing things we previously haven't been able to do. And here's the thing. I think there's a benefit to doing this, this in New Jersey. We think of ourselves as a very progressive minded people generally. And sometimes our elected officials just need their constituents to remind them of how progressive they really are. That's part of what this commemoration on Saturday is about. Yes, commemorate Juneteenth, but also the key takeaway is everyone who comes will push their elected officials to pass the New Jersey Reparations Task Force. That's us making history together by lifting our, lifting our voices collectively. And we can be proud about that advocacy. Those who want to participate in the Juneteenth rally and program, what can they do? Sure. So they can join us at the Lincoln Memorial on Springfield uh, Avenue at noon. We'll assemble there. There will be some speakers who will get us fired up. We'll then have a march. It's about half a mile down Market and across Broad to the steps of City Hall. We'll assemble there at 1.30 if folks want to just come straight to City Hall. And to your point, Doug, we'll hear from the mayor of the city of Newark, from the lieutenant governor, from Senator Cory Booker, uh, Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman, Congressman uh, Donald Payne, a number of elected officials who are championing this bill, including Shavonda Sumter. And then we'll hear from a number of leading voices who do advocacy work in New Jersey. I think it's, it's supposed to be a beautiful day uh, and we're gonna make history both celebrating Juneteenth as a state holiday, but using the day to make concrete how we can make Juneteenth really meaningful by passing the New, New Jersey Reparations Task Force bill. Now, in order to pass a bill, you do need you do need legislators, you do need state mm -hmm. lawmakers, you do need elected officials involved. But I'm glad to hear that it's not just all of the speakers. That's right. Because for the average person, sometimes they don't want to hear the politicians sure. talk. Right. Sure. Brian, sure. you you and I both understand that sometimes yeah. they want to hear people who, you know, are 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 working to yeah. fight what's going on on a different level, yeah. you know, on the grassroots level, or people who are being suppressed or are being, you know, impacted by, you know, racial injustice. I want to ask you, as six years now, as the president and CEO of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, what are some of the positive strides this yeah. state has made? Yeah, I love, I love that question. I mean, I think what has happened, I mean, to your point, Doug, and in particular around how we've been able to organize the voices of people in communities from the ground up across the state has led to some really inspirational legislative and policy and other change. So if, if I just take democracy and justice for an example, six years ago when I came to the Institute, we began to do work around expanding democracy in New Jersey in a way that would make New Jersey a national model. And so that work early began around organizing people who couldn't vote because they had criminal convictions. We learned that New Jersey in 1844 did two things. Uh, first, it restricted voting to white men only. And in 1844, 
it also restricted voting for people with criminal convictions. And so we launched a campaign called 1844 No More. We wanted to build a democracy that would include the voices of people with criminal convictions. And through really robust advocacy and organizing, to your point, Doug, of people across the state, uh, last year we were able to pass a law that restored the right to vote to 83,000 people on probation and parole. And this law took effect right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we hurried up and then championed a bill that provided online voter registration through which 400,000 New Jerseyans registered to vote, right? And these are some incredible, incredible uh, democracy expanding uh, efforts. And that led in the November 2020 election to New Jersey having the highest voter turnout in history, right? And then this year, uh, just last month, we were able to champion early voting, which I'm really, really proud of. We did that with a number of legislative partners, grassroots organizations, and we passed that bill. The governor signed that bill on the same day that Georgia's governor signed a really shameful uh, package of voter suppression tactics. And so what that means is that in November, uh, voters in New Jersey, as many Black voters have done in Southern states, can participate in souls to the polls because our early voting period in November allows for voting on two Sundays before the election. And souls to the polls is really effectively used, especially by Black churches in the, in the states that have early voting, to encourage um, folks to come worship at church, so perform their spiritual active duty by worshiping at church, and then to leave and perform their civic duty by going to vote directly from, from church. So souls of the polls for the first time will be available to voters in New Jersey. And I lift up the democracy space because I do think, as we've seen nationally, there's a real attack on voting rights. And my heart's desire as the head of the Institute for Social Justice has always been that in New Jersey, we ought to be thinking about how we build the most prosperous state for our residents, how we build the most inclusive state, how we build the most robust democracy, how we administer the greatest amount of compassionate justice in our legal system. How do we make New Jersey the kind of place that when you think about freedom and equity, inclusion, prosperity, you think of New Jersey first. And we've been able to make some real powerful strides in this work, doing so by organizing people from the ground up in a way their elected officials not only take note, but are held accountable to what people want. I know you're a busy guy, so I, I just have one more question I'm for you. Enough. One thing news departments don't do enough of is follow <coughs> up, right? So when you, we hear you talk about, and you talked about how it improved New Jersey's, you know, voting totals and, and early voting, but I want to hear a story from you of someone who got the right to vote, mm -hmm. who was incarcerated and, and, and now had a chance to participate in the democratic process. Tell us a story or two that has impacted you that say, Oh yeah, that was a good move. Oh, now, yeah. now people who don't get that and all they hear is that whether they agree, agreed or disagreed, they don't hear about how it impacted real people. Yeah. Tell us some yeah. of those stories if you can. So Doug, I, lo I love it. I mean, I can give you a story from, from our work in expanding democracy on election day. Uh, in November, I had the chance, along with my wife, uh, Charity, who's the principal of Avon Avenue School here in Newark. There's, there's probably not a better name, though, right? There is not. Charity is love. That's her. That's who she is at, at her core. What a great uh, name. Great name. So we had an opportunity to join uh, Julius uh, Morris, who is 72 years old. 
at the polling place. He voted in person in November. He is someone who at the age of 12 um, went to Jamesburg Youth Prison for a series of curfew violations. And Mr. Morris spent the better part of his adult life in prison. He never was able to register or vote because he had, he had criminal convictions starting at the age of 12. And at the age of 72, uh, my wife and I had this awesome privilege of joining him as he cast his first ballot. And he, he was preparing to go in to the polling place. I asked him, you know, how he felt. And he said, I thought about all of my, all of my ancestors who didn't have the right to vote. I thought when I was in, in prison about the number of people who passed away before having the right to vote. And he said, I go in now and, and I vote for them. And I tell you, Doug, it was, it was a, it was, it was a powerful moment because he's, he's reflecting on the years that he lost, the people who passed without having access to this thing he would now have access to. And though he lost a lot of years, he got a good part of what he was missing back in that moment and being able to vote. That was in Patterson, New Jersey. Then we came here to Newark and we joined uh, Tia Ryans, a really impressive uh, young person who uh, went to prison um, before she turned 18 and didn't have the right to vote. She was in prison for, for a while. She came out and she talked about how she now had the right to vote. She was the first one in line at 6 a.m. when the polling place opened. And she talked about how now having the right to vote connected her to the community to which she had returned, that without the vote, she felt estranged from it, didn't have a stake in it. But now she said, I feel like I feel like a whole person. And I will say to folks listening or watching that we don't often think about the way that voting, especially in a democracy like ours, is central to what it means to be a citizen. And not having access to it is the clearest indication that you don't have a stake in society. And so voting is the kind of thing that reintegrates people back in the community and makes them a part of it. And we had a chance to see those are just two examples, but 83,000 people were eligible to do what Tia and Mr. Morris did last November. And that's just an example of advocacy that we were able to do collectively when we organize ourselves from the ground up in our communities. Full disclosure, proud to say that Tia Ryans is a part of the WBGO Community Engagement News Voices and the Newark News and Story Collaborative effort headed by Britt Harley. She's been on the WBGO Journal interviewing others mm -hmm. who have been incarcerated and have come out trying to help them get back into society in a positive way. So we're very proud of Tia Ryans as well. And when it comes to thinking about what a privilege it is to be able to vote when you say that for those who don't show up at the polls. Uh, it makes you think when you hear stories about the 72 year old man who moved and touched you very much by realizing what it did mean to cast a ballot in the state of New Jersey. So Ryan, anything else you want to tell us about the Juneteenth program before we let you go? Sure. So we will invite folks when they join us on Saturday at noon for the Juneteenth uh, rally in March to go to 400yearsnj.org, 400yearsnj.org. That's a tool called 
phone to action and it allows you to speak directly to your elected officials in the state legislature and to Governor Murphy to encourage them to support the New Jersey Reparations Task Force Bill, 400yearsnj.org. And I look forward to seeing everyone on Saturday. You're one of those individuals I could talk to for hours. <laughs> I feel the same way, Doug, that's for sure. I appreciate it. Ryan Haygood is the CEO and president of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, their program coming up on Saturday. Thanks for joining us on the WBGO Journal.